Welcome to the Arnegade Podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses by nurses who are shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Carol McMacken. If you're a geek like me, this woman is like cotton candy for your brain. She's the clinical director of the Fibromyalgia and Myofascial Pain Clinic of Portland, Oregon. She developed frequency-specific microcurrent, or FSM, in 1995 and began teaching FSM courses in 1997. In addition to maintaining a part-time clinical practice, she teaches seminars on the use of FSM, and she has lectured at the National Institutes of Health and at medical conferences in the U.S., and all those other places. And she has uh, many, many peer-reviewed publications, which she will, I'm sure, speak about in this podcast. This is one of those things when you get done hearing about, you wonder, why doesn't everybody know about this? Don't forget, if you're a nurse after this podcast, you can head over to rnegade.pro, that's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro, and sign up to get a CE for listening to the podcast. Enjoy, Carol. Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Why isn't this a CE? CE by podcast. Mind blowing. People don't even know people like her exist. Renegades. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Somebody found you. Thank God they found you. Shining a light on those people. And by the way, you're going to be inspired. You can't contain this, Sybil. You can't contain it. Nurses know how to solve shit. Nailed it. Renegades. Antra and I, when we find some kind of new to us, you know, new kind of health science or technology, it's like um, literally like discovering buried treasure. There's so much out there. And then you read these things like I was on your website and, you know, watched a couple of videos and reading about what you do. And I'm like, why doesn't everybody know about this? When you start an entirely new concept in therapy, this isn't like a new drug using drugs since the 1930s. Why doesn't everybody know about it? When you're talking about an entirely new concept in therapy, we're all used to a biochemical way of looking at how the body works. And most people don't even think a lot about how drugs and nutrients work. Drugs and nutrients land on receptors on the outside of the cell they change the kinases that change the genes that change the mRNA that change what the cell produces. So something as simple as ibuprofen or vitamin C, let's just take ibuprofen. It lands on a receptor and it changes the pro-inflammatory prostaglandins that that cell puts out. We think of ibuprofen as some sort of floaty magic anti-inflammatory, but it actually works by connecting with a cell receptor and changing the prostaglandin cell. Well, they used willow bark for 
probably thousands of years, they used aspirin for 120 some odd years. And they had no idea of the mechanism until Upjohn developed ibuprofen in 1970, probably 1969, 70, 71 in there. I was a pharmaceutical salesman for 16 years Mm. before I went back to school at 40 to do two years of pre-med, get turned down for medical school, thank goodness, because I was 42 and had two little kids. And then was accepted into chiropractic college. So we're we're used to a biochemical way of looking at how the body works. In 1995, I got a list of frequencies that uh, came from an osteopath. The osteopath bought a practice in 1946 that came with a machine that was made in 1922. That machine came with a list of frequencies. And the osteopath, you know, walked into the back room of this clinic, took the sheet off of this bulky machine and said, hmm, what's this? Then he looked at the list and he basically taught himself how to use it and became really well known across most of Canada and the western half of the United States. So I got the list of frequencies in 1995. And we started using them on muscle pain first. 1998, we figured out that we could treat nerve pain. It's sort of intuitively obvious that nerve pain is due to inflammation in the nerve. And the way this system works is there's a... frequency list for pathologies that make tissue dysfunctional like inflammation and a list of frequencies was sort of intuitively obvious that nerve pain is caused by inflammation in the nerve. Well, eight or 10 years after we started treating nerve pain, then I looked up the research and found out, yes, indeed, every scientific model for nerve pain involves inflammation in the nerve but we found it all clinically first. So the concept of using frequencies that you can't hear, they're all below a thousand Hertz and current you can't feel, which is microamperage current, microamperage current increases ATP production by 500% in three different animal trials. One included an in vivo study on human lymphocytes. And so current, you can't feel frequencies. So we're going to go, I'm going to stick a pin and now we're going to frame what you've been saying because you dove deep into, I didn't say anything because you dove deep into the pool and I'm a geek and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is like, this is like crack. (laughs) Everything you're saying better but go yeah ahead. but but for the people listening to this i want to just put a frame around what you're talking about and come back okay, okay. so yeah. we got a little bit of your hi everybody this is karen demarco <laughs> not your void on the <laughs> rna podcast yes we do this all the time i unfortunately the podcast kind of uh has taken on the shape of my squirreling brain so uh but you know it's entertaining yes. 
but we are so happy to have uh, Carol on and your your website, frequency specific microcurrent therapy. Is that what you call it? Like a therapy? Frequency specific microcurrent. Uh, I would guess it's a therapy. Yeah, um, we just call it frequency specific microcurrent. Okay, so so they got the teaser. I mean, that was like uh, watching the movie with the National Treasure with Nick Cage. You know, it's like. <laughs> She goes into the back of this thing that you bought, and there's this old know, dusty yeah, machine, totally. and there's like a treasure map to it. <laughs> so we're going to get back to that. But I just totally. wanted to. Uh, but um, Antra found Carol and on the docket as as when we did our ruling start. You you kind of uh, you might have felt like a fly on the wall listening to this conversation between Antra and Carol because Antra just kind of was looking on the. Um, the dais of, of this online thing. And neither one of us had heard of what Carol does and we're just curious. And then went on our website and it's like, Holy cow. As I said, like, why doesn't everybody know this? So not only do we want to shine a light on you because it all seems so fascinating about how you came about it, but also on a shining a light on this technology, this science, this therapy. So so now we could go back to shining um, a light on the therapy. To me, is much more important than the yeah, story. But, you, but you're the you're the Trojan horse. I mean, you know, because if I've listened to people talk about therapies, and it's all about the therapy, but the person, the story, the why they do it is like the Trojan horse of how the information gets in my brain and is retained. So you are just, to me, you're as, as much of a important part of the, the story as the therapy. So I'm going to keep a pin in the 500% increase in ATP. Antra, do you have an, are you following me, Antra? Are you okay? Totally okay. Just really quickly, I have to say that, Carol, when I found you, you were talking about this, this, topic, I was like, oh, like she could be on our podcast and her and Karen can get in the rabbit hole because <laughs> Karen goes deep too. And I get to be on the a fly on the wall and watch, which will be brilliant. <laughs> so well, the rabbit hole gets even better when you, this is, this has been developed all through clinical science. Now science is a method of observation. It is not a body of knowledge that we are required to defend. It is, you do this and you observe that that happens. Hmm. Then you do it again and you observe that that happens again. And then you do it again and then you eliminate all the other variables by the ways that we have found to do that. And eventually you come to the inescapable conclusion that when you do this, this will happen. And if this doesn't happen, it's because your premise is wrong. So that's where we started. I started out treating muscle pain. Now, myofascial, I didn't find out. We treated 150 patients with myofascial pain syndrome. I didn't find out that it was considered to be incurable until I gave my first lecture at the American Back Society, I think at the end of 1997. And we didn't publish the first paper until 1998. But there was a man on the main podium who told 400 people 
that myofascial trigger points were all psychogenic because they were incurable. And I went up to him after my workshop in the afternoon to 30 people. And then I went up to him at his evening workshop and I said, what makes you think it's incurable? Well, because nobody can fix it. And it's like, well, here's my case report of 150 people. And it's 100%. It's not even that hard. And he said, show it to me when you get it published. So I published the paper in 98. That's how I got to know David Simons, who wrote the Trigger Point Manual. 98, we found out we could treat nerve pain. 99, I stumbled across, literally, I was working in a medical pain management clinic. And on the list, there is a frequency to reduce inflammation, 40 hertz. There's a frequency to address different tissues, including the spinal cord. Now, the thing that we will never know is how somebody in 1920 decided that 396 hertz was the frequency for a peripheral nerve. So a nerve outside the spinal cord is 396 hertz. And 10 is the frequency for the spinal cord. So in 1999, I worked at the pain clinic. There was a woman there with full body pain, fibromyalgia, all the neuroendocrine parts of fibromyalgia, spinal cord sensitization. She was so hyperacetic that if you touched her, she would break into a sweat. Her pain level was between a seven and an eight all the time. And that's on opiates. So the pain clinic sent her to me. And I thought, well, what could cause this kind of pain? It's obviously not peripheral. It's everywhere. She's not on statins. So it's not the muscles. What could do this? And it's like there's this little bird that sits on your shoulder and says, I wonder if it could be the spinal cord. Hmm. So I put a contact around her neck and a contact on her feet because she had pain from her neck to her toes, all the joints, all the hands, everything, and ran the frequency 40 hertz on channel A, 10 hertz on channel B to address the spinal cord, polarize the current positive because Becker says we're polarized positive at the top, negative at the bottom. If you haven't read the body electric, you should. And... Yes, that's a reading list. It's coming up. <laughs> and um, in, in maybe 10 minutes, her blink rate slows down. Now, as nurses, you know that you pay attention not just to the stuff that's on the screen when the patient's being monitored, but you pay attention to their respiration, their body habitus, their tone, right? Mm-hmm. Started to relax. Her breathing slowed down. And about 20 minutes into it, I said, what's your pain level? And she said, my neck still hurts. I said, yeah, but what about your legs? They don't hurt. Okay. So 60 minutes later, she's completely pain-free. Hmm. So I went back to my clinic in Gresham, and I had another patient with that same pain diagram, the same history, auto accident, neck trauma, whatever, Hyperactive patellar reflexes, ran 40 and 10. Pain was a zero in 60 minutes. Hmm. So in 1999, I did that 25 times. 
in December, I was invited to, well, I was invited to give a presentation in England in January. And in December, I got a phone call from one of the people that had taken my course. He's a physiatrist at NIH. And that year, he happened to be in charge of the speakers, the grand round speakers at in Building 10 at NIH. And he said, my speaker for February canceled. Can you come? And I said, sure. I got these 25 cases and I got no data. Nobody is going to believe this unless we have something objective. So I go to NIH, go to England, find out how to present, go to NIH. Jay Shaw helps me with my slides. I give this presentation. I said, I've done this 25 times. It's no longer chance. It's completely predictable and absolutely no one is going to believe it until we have data, objective data. So Terry Phillips came up and he's a tall Brit and he had just started at NIH. So he didn't know the rules, thank God. And he walks up to me and he says, you get me a spot of blood on blotter paper and I can tell you what's changing. And I went, so I called one of the patients that I had not been able to help. You know how frustrating that is. And I guess it was two years before. So I called her and I said, I have a new way of treating. Would you mind coming in? I'm going to have to poke your finger five or six times and get some blood spots. She said, absolutely not. I'll be there. So we did the blood samples and I did it every time her symptoms changes. So I got five samples over a 90 minute period and <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> the next lecture I had to give was at the Institute for Functional Medicine at their international symposium, energy medicine and clinical practice. And the data from Terry Phillips came across the wire, came across my fax machine, literally as I was walking out the door to go to the airport. Carol, are you, are you making that up? Like, this is like edge of my seat thing. And oh my gosh. Okay. Go. (laughs) And it's 2000. There's no Google. Right. And, um, so I walk into the hotel in Phoenix and I have this raw data. I can send you the chart. It's got all of the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin 1, 6, 8, TNF-alpha, interferon gamma, CGRP, substance P. And Jeff, Jeff Bland, who started the Institute for Functional Medicine, is walking out of the hotel. And I said, Jeff, I just got this cytokine data from Terry Phillips. I don't know what it means. And there's no medical school library in the hotel how do I find out whether these changes are significant? He said, oh, you should call Michael Ruff. He and Candace Pert wrote The Molecules of Emotion. He is probably the U.S. expert on cytokines. So I called Dr. Ruff. And I said, Dr. Ruff, Dr. McMahon, Dr. Bland said to call you. Um, I've got this data, and I don't know whether it's significant. And he said, yeah, yeah, what are the numbers? And I said, well, interleukin-1 goes from... 118 down to 21. And it was like the phone line went dead. And he said, what time frame? And I said, 90 minutes. And then it was like, Dr. Dr. Ruff, are are you there? And his voice was kind of hoarse. And he said, that's not possible. 
cytokines are hard to change. And when they change, they change slowly. It's like, no, they're not. They all change like that. He said, what? And I read him the numbers. I don't have them in my head anymore, but all of them changed by factors of 10 and 20 times in 90 minutes. Sub, and then we went to the speaker's dinner that night because I was supposed to lecture the next day. And um, neurologist David Perlmutter yeah. at, at the dinner, right? David Perlmutter says, well, that's nice. How, what does substance P do? And he, And then he said, substance P is manufactured in the spinal cord and sort of sent peripherally. And uh, if you change substance P, it really means that that frequency is addressing the spinal cord. I said, funny you should mention, substance P goes from, went down by 10 times. I think it went from 188 down to 8. I mean, it was just, it's, it was nuts. They all change like that. Since then, we've refined the procedure. So that kind of fibromyalgia accounts for 40% of fibromyalgia patients. And hmm. average, when we finally got the paper published, we had to change the name and make it about the cytokines because nobody wanted to hear that fibromyalgia was curable. So originally that was the title, res- Resolution of Fibromyalgia. So um, eventually we had 54 patients and uh, 60% of them recovered within four months. The biggest problem we have with FSM is that it changes symptoms so fast that it creates an identity crisis that is pretty much... I was, that was going to be my next question. I just wrote it down. What happens to those people when after 60 minutes, they're pain-free <laughs> for the first time in maybe years. decades? 14, seven, longest one was 75 years. Oh my, I could just imagine... I could just imagine they're like, where did it go? What did you just do to me? Where, where am I? In the beginning, it, I was so excited about getting rid of the pain that I didn't understand the process. So over time, I've learned to warn them. It's like, this is not going to be permanent. When it comes back, I promise you it's not going to be any worse, but you're going to mind it more. There's always two parts to pain. One is how much it hurts. One is how much you mind it. And when it comes back, you're going to mind it more and it's going to frighten you and piss you off. So Hmm. come back in three days. I want to wait until the pain comes back. And when we get rid of it the second time, then you'll begin to believe it. And then there's the third time, then you'll expect it. So they need treatment. It lasts any place from two hours to two weeks. Um, I've had two patients, one male, one female, where it was a one visit fix was done. Can you, can you tell me or tell us actually, um, for people that don't know, like how does frequency, how does this work? Like what's resonance? Like, let's just go down to the one Oh one. So people can, okay. Cause conceptually, I think it will be helpful. Okay. Yeah. So, throw, throw some pain on the invisible man. Yes, exactly. So the, the basic concept is that one of the receptor on the cell 
that responds to a chemical that you drop on it, mm-hmm. and it changes the output of the cell. Res- plain old resonance is the tendency of a system to respond um, to a particular frequency when it resonates with it. So back okay. in the 1700s, I think, they found out that soldiers marching in step across a bridge, if there were enough of them, and if they marched in step, the frequency they set up when they marched could match the structural mechanical frequency that holds the bridge together. And the bridge would simply come apart and they'd all end up in the water. So to this day, when a company across the bridge, they break step. My chemistry teacher told us a story. You know how in Victor Victoria, <laughs> the singer sings a note that oh, breaks, shatters a crystal glass? How do you think that happens? Well, the, there is a particular frequency that holds lead atoms together in a 70% lead crystal matrix. Though there's a every, every chemical bond, every mechanical bond has a frequency at which it resonates. In a lead crystal glass, it's within the sound of the human voice, within the range of the human voice. So if the singer hits that precise note, and I can't remember what the frequency are, frequency is because it's one frequency. And if she sustains it long enough perfectly that the atoms begin to vibrate, the atoms vibrate so much that the glass simply comes apart. It's not volume. It's precision of resonance. Hmm. Everybody knows the story of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Tacoma Narrows Bridge was really flexible. Oh, yeah, everybody, everybody. But, you know, say it anyway for everybody who doesn't. Not, okay. not me. Tacoma Narrows <laughs> live in the Northwest. There was a, a wind, a, a storm, rainstorm that came around the corner of the Tacoma Narrows. It wasn't 100 miles an hour. It was about 25 or 30. But the bridge was experimental. It was thin uh, bed, and it was flexible. Well, as the wind came around, the bridge started swinging in at, until it met the resonant frequency that held the bridge together. Pretty soon you have video of a sine wave set up in the, in the roadbed on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge and it simply comes apart. That is the force of resonance. That is resonance. It is powerful. It is inexorable. And it works everywhere. So just to clarify, so the resonance that was created by the wind and the bridge together was the same as the bridge structure itself. That's amazing. Yeah. And it, it simply came apart. So what we found, it's really interesting. The on, let's say system cells, there is a receptor that responds to pamps and dams pathogen-associated molecular patterns, and damage-associated molecular patterns. 
But let's take pathogen-associated molecular patterns because this speaks to potential side effects. So when you have an infection, infection, pathogen-associated molecular patterns are little pieces of bacteria. They'll land on that receptor on the outside of an immune system cell and or a particular tissue cell and notify the kinases, the genes, and the transcription factors in the cell that there's an infection and that the appropriate cellular response is to produce inflammation to contain the infection. Now, as nurses, you all know that patients sometimes present with occult infections. Their white count is 13.5, no drama. Maybe it's 14, but nobody's all excited about it because it's not 20,000. They have something that is inflamed. Let's say they think they have TMJ. We have a dentist, and uh, she discovered that when you run the frequency, she thought the patient just had inflammatory periodontitis, just periodontal disease was straight-up inflammation. So she ran the frequencies to reduce inflammation in uh, the soft tissues in the mouth. And sure enough, the pain went away. The patient was completely pain-free. Everybody cheered. Inflammation was gone. Four to six hours later, the patient ended up in the emergency room with an acute infection that needed antibiotics. She had her inflammatory periodontal disease was caused by an occult or hidden infection. Mm -hmm. So the inflammation that she fixed broke the thing that was containing the infection. Right. Uh The implications of that are mind-blowing. You ready? Yeah. Okay. The implications are that the frequency 40 hertz on A and anything on B, the frequency overrode the bacterial fragment that was telling the cell to produce inflammation. The frequency overcame that chemical interaction, overrode it, turned down the inflammation even in the presence of infection. And it lasts for about four to six hours. At the end of that four to six hours, the infection has been basically uncontained for four to six hours. And the occult infection goes from, we don't know what's causing your inflammation to, oh, you have an infection. So some people think of it as a side effect. I think of it as good news. That patient- Because otherwise they never would have found that, in- that infection. Exactly. And right. there's no other, there's no other way to do that. The only way you can do that in medicine is give them an antibiotic when you think you shouldn't and see if that takes mm-hmm. the inflammation down. And so that's, and it's been, it's been those clinical pearls over time, five naturopaths in a single class in January of 1997. So once you do this and that happened, do this and that happened, then you really, in a fee-for-service practice, 
you can't do a placebo controlled trial because you can't charge somebody for using a placebo on them. So the only other way to find out if it's reproducible, like was it really working or did it just appear to work because the walls in the clinic are pink and I've got, you know, good hands. Is it just teachable? Is it reproducible? So I taught 20 seven naturopathic students and a few chiropractors in 1997 in January. And they bought machines, some of them, about eight or 10 of them. And by June of 97, we knew it was reproducible. So after that, I did four seminars a year in Portland. Then 99, I think I did one in Chicago and one in Florida because my students went back there and invited me to teach. And, um, then 2000 and oh, then huh, when I lectured at the international, the IFM symposium in 2000, um, somebody was there from Australia and he wanted health world as a metagenics distributor in Australia to sponsor FSM courses. So I started teaching in Australia and we have probably 150 students in Australia back in the day. I think we're down to probably 50 or 75 over the last 20 years. And um, and as it grew, we found out it was quite reproducible. Muscle pain, nerve pain, fibromyalgia from spine trauma. Then we started treating traumatic brain injuries. Um, <laughs> then, you know, thalamic pain from a stroke that kind of <laughs> syndrome um, where you have a stroke and the, the ventricles are affected and the thalamus is affected. I had a patient in 1998 that was sent over from Kaiser and um, he was pain-free in 40 minutes after seven, five years. Um, so we found out we could treat thalamic pain. So the first year that we started to do this, uh, I was treating myself, my kids, my partner and I were treating each other. And the first thing we had to find out was if a frequency didn't work, would it hurt you? So once we made sure that if there wasn't anything for it to resonate with, it would just go right on through. So we did that part before I ever took it into the clinic. Then I started working on patients and then I started teaching it. And then once people found out that I could treat things that nobody else would treat, things started walking in the door. Asthma. Asthma. I was just going to ask you. Yeah. I want to get back to the traumatic brain injury and the asthma, but first what made you go from, not being somebody who does this to somebody who does this. Like what was, what happened the year before you and your partner were treating each other? Um, well, what made everything different from one day to the next? There's two stories. First, a <laughs> partner had the list. He's the one that worked with the osteopath and he worked with the osteopath in 1983 he brought the list of frequencies home and stuck them in a drawer. I graduated from chiropractic college in 
93, started practice in 94. And um, I'm working on a patient in the fall of 94 with my thumbs. I learned manual trigger point therapy. And she came in with her pain at a four, and she had a distinct knot. She was a runner. And she had a distinct knot in her gastrox. It was palpable. It feels like a grain of rice. So I started working on it with my thumbs, doing just typical Travell and Simons. What's a gastrox? The gastrocnemius, triceps serii, the gastroc and soleus. Goes, they go from the <laughs> Anatomy's not really a strong suit there, never mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I heard triceps. But triceps serii is the gastrocnemius complex that go from the heel to the knee. Part right. of the like, stops below the, the femur and the other two heads go above the femur. So when you run, that muscle gets a lot of work. Okay. Right. Thank I you. I was going to say. <laughs> Thanks for I the know spoon. what it is. Thanks for the spoon feed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, what's interesting is I had a four point until my senior year when I took care of my mom and when she died of pancreatic cancer. So anatomy was easy for me, but I spent Netter's Illustrated Atlas of Anatomy. You know that book? No, yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I spent five years probably 10 hours a day with Netter open on the counter next to me as I worked on patients. I knew anatomy, but I didn't know anatomy until I started doing this. So anyway, how did we start? Thank you. (laughs) I worked on this patient with my thumbs and her pain all of a sudden went from a four to a seven. And it's like, oh crap. Now what? So one of my teachers at school, I called George and said, this has just happened. What did I do? What do I do? And he said, well, you have a microcurrent there. Put 18 hertz on channel A and 62 hertz on channel B. This is before I knew anything about the list. And put 18 hertz on A, 62 on B, and set up the machine this particular way and, and run it while you work on the tissue. Okay. And I said, what are those frequencies? He said, well, I'll tell you if it works. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and sure enough, her pain went from a seven to a zero in about 10, 15 minutes. She walked, the trigger point was gone. She walked out the door. She was happy. I called him and said, what did I just do? He said, well, 18 hertz is the frequency to stop bleeding and 62 hertz is the frequency for the arteries. And I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, it's from the list. What list? Well, the list I got from Harry. What list you got from Harry? (laughs) Then he told me the story. So that was the first time. Then in, it was probably late 95, early 96, I'm working on patients and I bought a machine, microcurrent machine to do facial treatments. You know, it's good for wrinkles and all that. And it came with graphite gloves. And I had the frequencies that I knew written on the back of a business card. And I had a, he was a longshoreman on the table. He'd had an auto accident. I'd been working on his neck with my, with my trained thumbs and fingers. And his symptom was every time he lifted his head and turned it, he got dizzy. 
Well, it's pretty well known that trigger points in the sternocleidomastoid muscle will cause dizziness. And I'm sitting there mashing on his neck twice a week, three times a week for three weeks, and nothing is changing. He's got a neck like a tree trunk. And he's got an appointment with a neurologist the next day for an evaluation because when he bends his head forward and turns it, he's got a, what, 10,000-ton train car on the end of a steel cable, and he's looking down from a crane in the train yard. So getting dizzy when you've got that situation is a really bad thing. So this neurologist was going to end up costing him his job. I had one visit to get rid of this knot in his neck. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the business card with the frequencies on it. And across the hall is this facial machine with graphite gloves. And then there's this blue analog microcurrent machine. And I'm told that the shortest prayer ever is help. That was the prayer. And put the graphite gloves on. I took the frequencies for mineral deposits in the muscle belly and the connective tissue and used them on his neck with the graphite gloves. Why did I do that? Well, we already knew my fingers didn't work. So I had to change the game. So I used those frequencies and the graphite gloves connected to the microcurrent machine and used them on his neck. And the neck muscles turned to pudding. They, they soften in a way that is impossible in any setting short of general anesthesia. It's, it, I've never seen anything like it. It was like, oh, my God. And he got sleepy. The graphite gloves on my hands got really warm. His neck muscles turned to smush. All the knots disappeared. At the end of it, I had him lift his head and turn it. There was no dizziness. It was done. After three months of nothing, I treated him one more time. It was, it was done. So those are the first two cases. So when you ask me, why did I keep going? How did it change? After you do that, how? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So I have... Eight years of Catholic grammar school, four years of a Catholic girls' high school, and then four years of a Jesuit university. So the ethics. Oh, and then I became a pharmaceutical salesman in my early 20s, back before managed care, back before there were providers, back when doctors still made house calls and still trusted their intuition and their clinical awareness more than they needed double-blind, placebo-controlled, managed care, seven-minute visit kind of medicine that we have now. And those doctors in the 1970s and 80s are the ones that taught me medicine. I got my clinical Mm -hmm. chiropractor when I was 45, 46. I was 47 when I graduated. And... So I started this when I was 48. And how could you not? When you can get someone's pain from a seven to a zero without drugs, ethically, how could you do anything else? Right. So 
there you go. And since then, oh, so after I gave this Jeff Bland lecture, there's this cardiologist in Beverly Hills that called me and wanted me to come down and work in his office. I'm a new chiropractor graduate, right? And he wants me to come work in his office. It's like, well, it's a free plane ride and the lunch. Could be interesting. So I go down to his office and one of the patients that he brings in is somebody that's in ventricular tachycardia, right? So he puts him on a monitor. He does some sort of thing that he does, um, the squeezy leg thing that... Compression devices? That that one, yeah. Yeah. That increases pressure and is supposed to settle things down. So the patient's pulse was, I think, about 148, 150. It was sort of bouncing between 140 and 150. And you know anatomy. How do you slow... What part of the nervous system has as its job to slow the pulse? The vagus nerve. Vagus nerve. Yeah. Right. So I ran the frequency <laughs> in the vagus. And his pulse went from 148 to 72 in 30 seconds. And it absolutely scared me to death. So I never trust, I never touched the vagus again until about five years ago when one of my practitioners, uh, brilliant GP from Australia came and gave a lecture about how the vagus controls the immune system, how the vagus not only controls your digestion and your heart rate, which we all think about, but the primary function of the vagus, one of the primary functions is to control T cells and macrophages out of the spleen. So when you treat autoimmune disease, there is no way, to actually treat autoimmune disease conservatively without treating the vagus. You have to figure out what turned it off in the first place. The vagus is turned off by infection, stress, and trauma. And then, then you treat the stress centers and limbic system that turn the vagus off. Then you turn the vagus on. The vagus starts controlling the immune system and the immune and the autoimmune disease just quiets down. So the last five years, we've been experimenting for when and how to use that, how long to run it, and then you have to treat the peripheral organs. Carol, we hear so much, um, like I have heard so much in the last, I don't know, five years maybe about dis- dysregulated nervous systems, you know, people who've suffered trauma, people who have lived in chronic stress for a long time. So I think that's really an interesting application. And so I'm curious, do you have clients that come in and say, you know, I- I- I'm a I'm a total stress ball, like I'm not in any pain per se, or but I just, I- I- I'm basically a freak show. <laughs> that, that when patients come in and say that, it's like, hmm, well, let's see what we can do about that. Now, remember the data that we got from NIH? The other thing that happens when the frequency is correct for whatever you're treating is the endorphins go up by a factor of 10 times and probably the cannabinoids because the patients get totally stoned. So you say, well, yeah, pretty good luck with that. And then you treat to quiet the stress centers in the medulla, 
and what we call the midbrain, which includes the limbic system, the thalamus, and the hippocampus especially, and then you turn on the vagus. The feedback loop, the stress centers in the limbic system and the midbrain are the ones that turn off the vagus mm-hmm. when there's infection, stress, and trauma, physical trauma, and the vagus is in charge of notifying the midbrain when there is infection, stressor, physical trauma. So it's, I hate to say it, but it's easy. We have psychiatrists, we have um, psychiatrists, psychologists who use FSM. Our practitioner base started with those 25 people in 1997 and there are now 4,000 practitioners in 23 countries. Oh. I mean, I, th- I would so imagine... Jump-starting. You stick to your 12-point maintenance program, we wouldn't have to jump-start you like this. <laughs> well, and, the- and, you, and you wouldn't even get to autoimmunity or any of the cancer or any of this stuff if you came in first just to, you know, calm your nervous system down. That's, That's fascinating. Yeah. I got exposed to mold, um, black mold, in 1998. Haven't really been healthy since, not... I mean, not without effort. And then I got exposed again in 2012 and finally had gastroparesis, SIBO, and chronic pancreatitis by 2015 or 16, I think. And we found out that the mold is what turns off the vagus. So Nathan is an MD who got me treated appropriately to get rid of the mold, but I still treat myself. I have chronic pancreatitis for, for five years and I don't have pancreatic cancer. I'm going to let you just stew on that for a second. <laughs> I have chronic pancreatitis for five years and I do not have pancreat, pancreatic cancer. So treat concussion in Vegas, reduce inflammation in the pancreas. And it helps that I eat well and I take supplements and I don't smoke and don't drink much. But um, yeah, if, if you could keep the immune system balanced Mm -hmm. as you have to, inflammation is ultimately what saves your life, but ultimately unregulated inflammation is what's going to kill you. Mm -hmm. The most important thing about FSM as far as I'm concerned is that it's teachable. It's reproducible and um, it's teachable and it's reproducible. Those, those the, but the fact that I can teach it to somebody and it's it's a lot. It used to be a two day course, then it went to three, then it went to three and a half, and then this last year I just bit the bullet and made it five. And it's overwhelming, and fully fifty percent of it is differential diagnosis. So this isn't like using a laser where you just do the same thing to everybody. Low back pain. If your back pain is worse when you bend forward, it's a disc. If it's worse when you bend back, it's a facet joint. If it's worse when you walk, it's a facet or a torn SI joint, a sacroiliac joint, and each one of those things is treated differently. Right? Arm pain can be from the nerve, but it can also be from uh, the, per, the posterior joint, the facet joint in the spine. And so 
fully 50% of the course is differential diagnosis and supportive therapies. So let's say I treat whatever, and it's like ice. It's like water and ice, right? Water, H2O, is completely stable as ice as long as the surrounding environment is zero degrees. Between 1 and 99, it's completely stable as a liquid. Above 99, it's the it's surrounding environment that determines the state of the tissue. So if you take somebody that is gluten sensitive and you fix their inflammatory bowel disease or their irritable bowel disease or their whatever, and they go home and won't stop eating wheat, they're not going to stay better. So you have to have something to support the stable state. So that's the other part of the seminar. It's not just the frequencies. It's the stable state that it takes to make things permanent. So it's pretty fun. I just, it's, it's like, I just love being able to do it. Right. I Can you talk a little bit more about, I get the, the pain ones and the nerve ones and the frequency, but when you said um, uh, traumatic brain injury and the asthma, like, are you stimulating tissue regeneration? Like what, what? It's a good question. I like your questions. So the asthma discovery and the traumatic brain injury discoveries, the asthma discovery was an accident. I had a patient, so chiropractors for hundreds of years have known that if you can adjust the thoracic spine to stimulate the sympathetics, that you can turn off an asthma attack. Right. So I had a patient who came in to get her low back treated and she was having an asthma attack at the same time. So she kept her appointment and she said, yeah, but I'm on my way to the emergency room because my peak flow was whatever, which was bad. And um, I said, well, you mind if I try something? She said, no, as she's wheezing away. And because I sold drugs for asthma, I knew that asthma is a hypersensitivity of the receptors in the bronchi to histamine and inflammation, right? So I have a frequency for allergy reaction. I have a frequency for inflammation. And I have a frequency for spasm that only works in smooth muscle. Mm. Bronchi, the bile ducts, whatever. And it's like, well can't hurt. She's going to the ER anyway. I got nothing to lose. We're okay. So I put the gloves back to front across her chest and um, ran inflammation in the bronchi and her wheezing slowed down, ran allergy reaction of the bronchi, the wheezing slowed down, ran spasm, wheezing stopped. And it's like, it worked. <laughs> it's like, well, okay then. She said, well, that saves me a trip. So then the next time on her way to the hospital, stopped by the clinic, we did it again. And it came to be that she would always come to the office first. She eventually, they just slowed down. Now, I have a book called The Resonance Effect. And I have a textbook that was published by Elsevier in 2010. And the resonance effect was published in 2017 um, by Penguin Random, Random House. And that book tells the story of 
the first asthma patient. And all of these, mind you, were a complete surprise to me because I didn't expect them to work. And then it's like, well, darn, it worked. Far out. Then I found, I went to visit a friend in Utah and her neighbor, she wasn't, she was a, the friend was also a former employee. She was my assistant and she was treating her next door neighbor for chronic asthma. So it's one of those patients where their skin is kind of gray and she's had asthma for 10 years and it takes so much energy to breathe that she's 20 pounds underweight, right? And the medication makes you a little nauseous, that kind. Yeah. She'd already been treated for the acute stuff. So we did that, but that didn't get it. So we had to treat chronic inflammation and the frequency for um, actually tuberculosis and the frequency for catarrh, which is the um, European word you can see infectious thing. She went from gray to pink. She hadn't been able to leave her house in about 10 years. And six months later, she got on a plane 10 pounds heavier, got on a plane, flew to Portland, took my class, bought a machine so she could treat herself at home. So they're all happy accidents. Brain injury patients, I can't put tissue back that's not there. So younger is better. There's enough nerve growth factor. Um, Sooner is better. So somebody that's 15 years post-injury, not quite as easy. Um, And when you think about strokes and brain injury, inflammation is part of the problem. So you reduce inflammation in different parts of the brain. Um, Parkinson's, you have to increase secretions in the basal ganglia. And that works really well, like intention tremor. The kid hasn't been able to touch his nose or hold a coffee cup since he got hit by a car as a pedestrian. You run, you treat the basal ganglia, the cerebellum, and then you increase secretions in the basal ganglia, and he can touch his nose and hold a cup. Wow. And it's like, seriously? Then I thought, well, then we need to connect the basal ganglia with the sensory and motor cortex. So we ran the frequencies to increase secretions in the sensory and motor cortex. Now, mind you, there's a neurologist in the class from Walter Reed. And Stephen did all of the neuro exam as we're doing this treatment. So I ran the frequency to increase secretions in the sensory motor cortex. And the intention tremor came back twice as bad. And I looked at Stephen and said, Dr. Sharp, what did I just do? And he thought a minute and he said, you increase the input from the sensory cortex to the extent that it overwhelmed the ability of the basal ganglia to control the input. So quiet down the sensory cortex and bring back up the basal ganglia and let's see what happens. So you quiet down the sensory motor cortex, you increase the secretions in the basal ganglia, and it 
Oh my gosh. I know. That freaks me out how much power you have. It's like you're turning dials. So answer that question. You, you, you and your partner wanted to know if, uh, if it doesn't help, will it hurt? Right. And the only, the only, the contraindications are repeated over and over and over again in the seminar. If you frequency to reduce inflammation and the pain goes down, but it comes back up four hours later, it is an infection. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what the white count says. If you reduce inflammation, and the pain goes up either at the time or afterwards, it's an infection. The body needs scar tissue to repair itself. So when there is a new injury, any place on the body, you can't run the frequencies to reduce scar tissue for six weeks until the wound is healed or the sprain is healed, or you're going to make it worse. And I know that because I have made pretty much every mistake, and they're all temporary. It's like, oops, okay, I can fix that. What are the other ones? Detox reaction. If you're working on muscles that have a lot of metabolic waste and all of a sudden they turn to pudding Mm. and all the connective tissue unwinds and the metabolic waste all gets on a bus and heads for your liver. Well, the liver detoxification enzymes are going to run out of substrate pretty quick. And so you learn to have the patient drink water and maybe have some coleslaw or broccoli and then they don't have a detox reaction. They don't have a Herxheimer's or something, right? Yeah, it's kind of like bacteria driving, dying off, but it's more like the liver detoxification pathways. The P450 pathway needs water for phase one and um, sulfur-bearing molecules for phase two. So you just take all this information that you learn from various places and you put it together to create a safe and effective treatment. And as the time has gone by, this is... 25 years now, I've learned to use fewer frequencies for longer periods of time. Um, and you learn a lot of respect. Four years ago, we learned how to treat Ehlers-Danlos. Like, treat it. Now, this was an accident, mind you. They're all happy accidents. There's a little bird that sits on your shoulder that says, hmm, I wonder if. So at a meeting where I needed to give a presentation to the other instructors, we had an instructor's day and I'm lecturing to all these instructors, medical physicians mostly. And the wife of one of the instructors was sitting on my left and she had double grip to be able to hold her water bottle. And I said, what's wrong with your arm? She said, Oh, I have Ehlers-Danlos. And I Hmm. Now, Ehlers-Danlos is genetic, but it's a dysfunction in the construction of connective tissue. So the connective tissue in all of the types of Ehlers-Danlos is hypermobile. It stretches too much, and so it gets little tears in it. Well, there's a frequency for torn and broken that works great for Achilles tendonitis. And I thought, well, what if we tried it on just connective tissue. So I ran the frequency torn and broken 
on the connective tissue and put a hotel napkin that I wetted and I clipped it around her neck and her arms were what bothered her the most. And I took another two hotel napkins and the contacts have to be wet to conduct the current. And I ran torn and broken in the connective tissue from her neck to her hands. And you know how the, the hallmark of Ehlers-Danlos is the little finger goes to 90 to 100. Well, hers went to 110 degrees, right? And her elbows bent backwards and all of those diagnostic measures for Ehlers-Danlos. At the end of 60 minutes, her range of motion in her little finger was 70 and her elbows were zero. Okay. Then her husband came and took my course uh, four months later in Denver. And when you look at her pain diagram, it's all the joints, shoulders, elbows, wrists, knees, ankles, hips, everything hurts. Everybody assumes that that pain is coming from the tendons at those joints. Well, that pain diagram, if you look at it, is exactly the same as fibromyalgia from spine trauma. Now, this is a leap. The disc, the spinal disc annulus is 14 layers of connective tissue wound round and round and round, like a jelly donut. The jelly part of the donut is pretty much concentrated phospholipase A2, which is the biologic equivalent of battery acid. And when the connective tissue in the disc is sloppy and leaky, as it would be in Ehlers-Danlos, the battery acid leaks out and makes changes to the anterolateral pain pathways in the spinal cord. So the place where the pain is perceived is the same as in fibromyalgia, shoulders, elbows, wrists, hips, knees, ankles. So when she was at the seminar, there were actually two people in that class with Ehlers-Danlos. We did the same thing to both of them. We did from neck to feet, 124, torn and broken in the connective tissue, 77. We did inflammation in the spinal cord as if they were fibromyalgia patients. And we treated, have you ever met an Ehlers-Danlos patient that did not have anxiety, depression, and digestive problems? and a heartbeat that was around 90? Anybody? No, right? They're all like that. Okay, so we ran from neck to pubic bone, the um, what we call vagal tone, just treating the, the brain and the vagus in particular, and increasing secretions and removing trauma from the vagus to get the heart rate down. So at the end of 60 minutes, both of these patients have completely normal range of motion. They've gone from nine out of nine on the Baton scale to zero out of nine on the Baton scale. Their pain level has gone from an eight to a zero, and their heart rate's 67. Have you done that on anyone with significantly like advanced Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Like Exactly the same process. They're the milder forms. We don't get... We don't get the easy ones because the, the, you know, the cardiac ones and the mm-hmm. different more meta, 
metabolically or physiologically dangerous ADS, we just don't see. So we see generally nine out of nine on the Baton scale. So it's mostly the musculoskeletal and hypermobility syndrome, peripheral um, errors, and and the I'd say there's still nine out of nine, but they're on the easier end of the scale. But if it works on them, why wouldn't it work on somebody else? I just don't see them. Mm. We've got Cleveland, Cincinnati Children's, and Shirley Ryan. Knock them on the back door with the physical medicine and rehab people. So pain doctors make their money doing injections. So they're not interested in something that's going to get them $120. It's just like not even a thing. But the PMR doctors and the physical therapists and the occupational therapists and the nurse practitioners, their motivation is more to get patients better, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So they make their money doing, they're either on salary or they make money doing what they do. And so that's how we've um, moved FSM into um, medical clinics with individual physicians who get intrigued and bring it in because the devices are approved in the category of TENS devices. They're FDA approved. They have CE marks. They're, let's see, EIC 60601 and ISO 13485 safety and quality standards or 510K. The devices are completely separate. What I say doesn't apply to the devices at all. It applies to the effective frequencies. And when I, I did end up getting... My father owned the device company, and when he passed away, I was the manager for a while, and we got interviewed by the FDA. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, I didn't have any trouble at all because I'd been planning for that since I started teaching it in 1997. We have two separate companies. What I say applies only to the effect of the frequencies, and I am a clinician sharing my clinical observations with other clinicians has nothing to do with the device. When we first started, there was only this one set of devices that met these parameters. Now we've got a lot of don't have quite the quality standards, but there's different machines you can use. What is the difference between FSM and like a PEMF mat, which is the pulsed magnetic electrotherapy or a Rife machine, which I know they use in cancer treatment and it is frequency based. Like how, how, how is that? How is FSM different? Pulse DMF um, and non-specific microcurrent. Um, it's pulse DMF moves electrons, and it's not frequency specific in general. Okay. Rife machines. Rife worked with light frequencies. His frequencies are all between eight and sixteen thousand hertz. He used plasma light. He did not use electrical current. So the Rife machines that are out there have somehow translated Rife's original frequencies into electrical pulses, which Rife never used. He used Mm. light frequencies. So my other question about the Rife devices is um, how do people get them? Rife has 
wife had a problem. He didn't teach anybody. Mm-hmm. He didn't publish. And he had one friend with one machine and one list of frequencies someplace in California, I think in Southern California. And when Rife's lab got raided by the FDA and the AMA, they destroyed his equipment, confiscated his records, took everything. So where did the Rife, quote unquote, frequencies come from? Somebody get a hold of the guy in Southern California? I have have trouble with the provenance. I know exactly where mine come from. Mm-hmm. Ones that George has developed over the years by dowsing for them or whatever, I keep in a separate box that are marked investigational and they stay investigational until we have literal documentation, EEG, some sort of irrefutable, objective, mm. repeatable. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. It actually does what we think it does. So um, most of the microcurrent devices prior to the ones that we use for FSM were nonspecific. They used three-tenths of a hertz, one hertz, 30 hertz, 300 hertz. There was no logic to it. There was no, there was just, let's try different frequencies. So that's the background. Tens devices use milliamps, and they operate on the pain gate theory. So you create enough buzzing and muscle contraction above the level of the pain generator and the the input into the spinal cord um, interferes with the ascending pain signals from whatever the pain generator is. Hmm. That's the biggest difference in the devices, micro amperage current, FSM devices require two channels mm-hmm. because combination of the two that produces the effect. Somehow the frequencies blend inside the body and do whatever they do. The, the guys at the doctors in PMNR at Cleveland Clinic have, I have seen them use five, five or seven, five devices at one time on a two-year-old and somehow the body sorts it all out when the frequency are correct they blend in the middle and create a harmonic and both of them need to be correct so it has to be a two-channel device that can be set to specificity so the frequency for the ligament is 100 hertz frequency for the vagus is 109. Oh, it's like, okay. the, it's like resonance alchemy. That's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's like alchemy. And I love so much, Carol, like your little bird and your curiosity, like it has completely like, that's what was different. This, this open, this curiosity that just led you down this path. And every single story you tell is just so fascinating to hear you go, Huh, well, let's try it here. I kept getting, have you seen Sherlock Holmes, the new, the new ones with Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah. Now you call them happy accidents, but when I was listening to you, it's like, (laughs) if I do this and do this and because, because of all the knowledge and experience you have, you, you know, you start thinking about the receptor on the cell and what's going on. And 
and the um, similar symptomology. And you put all of these ingredients. Yeah. It's, it's synergy. It's the combination of my introduction to medicine on the medical side as a pharmaceutical rep. So I learned, I've sold every class of drugs except for psychotropics and antibiotics. They're still my worst subjects. But orthopedics, respiratory care, cardiology, neurology, called on all of them. So I had to know a lot about those systems before I ever went to chiropractic college. And then I'm a terrible chiropractor. I don't think adjusting joints is good for increasing range of motion, but that's it. And it, it is, it's a synergy of everything I learned in medicine, everything I learned in chiropractic college, and then what FSM has taught me over the years. My favorite subjects, like my hobbies, are immunology and neurology. If I didn't go to college, you are a geek. <laughs> totally, absolutely. Psycho neuroimmunology. <laughs> exactly. So that was. If I didn't go to chiropractic college, my next, my next life plan was psycho neuro was neuroimmunology, psycho neuroimmunology, because that's in the body. Everything is connected to everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when you take somebody, for example, that's been that patient that's been in chronic pain for 25 years, they are thought of as having just a negative attitude, right? Just a bad. Mm-hmm. Well, from a neurology standpoint, that's what corticotrophin releasing factor does in the brain. When stress hormones go up and when your pain level is a seven, your stress hormones go up that you don't get to vote about that, right? <laughs> stress hormones, stress hormones go up, corticotrophin releasing factor goes up in the brain. Corticotrophin releasing factor changes the whole endocrine system. And when you're effectively, the best analogy is when you're being chased through the jungle by a tiger or when a tiger is dragging you through the jungle, do you need any short-term memory? No, right? Because the only thing of any importance that's happening is that you've got 30 minutes to live and a tiger's dragging you through the woods. Do you need to be able to do any complex cognitive processing? Uh, No, because you've got 30 minutes to live. What's the only thing you need to remember? only thing you need to remember is how you got away from the tiger the last time. So the hippocampus mm-hmm. and the amygdala collaborate. They communicate directly to turn off the higher cortical functions, to turn on probably the anterior cingulate cortex, to turn on the memory of every bad thing that has ever happened to you right? It's yeah. It's like psychological antibodies, your psychological immune system. That's how you get away from the tiger. This time is the way you got away from the tiger the last time, even though there's no tiger. (laughs) That's what I was just going to say. The problem is there's no tiger, but we're still in that. (laughs) 
pain levels a seven because you've got Ehlers-Danlos and your discs leak and it inflames your spinal cord and it changes your nerve. If your pain levels a seven. Of course, there's a tiger. Right. Right. So it's, it's, it's just, it's fascinating. And to be able to manipulate that system directly and immediately is just so much fun. Okay. <laughs> That's going to be part two. And it's not, well, of course we can talk more about S- FSM, but I would love, I, I just uh, was recently published in um, the APA journal, Spirituality and Clinical Practice. Mm. And I know it, uh, I worked with people with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, but only working with the mind. And when you talked about the identity crisis, first question I always ask somebody is, is there any part of you that's afraid to be well? And it, it's very important because they, the identity is very often, there's a big benefit from it people who are afraid to say no, people who are embroiled with cognitive dissonance, their illness is their security blanket because they can say no. Their illness is their identity. They've been told by a guy on a white coat and everybody you read on the internet that what you have is incurable, mm-hmm. and used to it, and you are who you are includes being in pain. When your pain goes away, it's not that you didn't want it to go away. It's that once it's gone, all those guys in white coats were wrong. Yeah. And now who are you? Yeah. Oh, when, we, when we put out uh, a, a notice to recruit for the study, the venom oh. that came back at us from people who, who do you think, like, and it was very kind of scientific. This is our hypothesis, why this works, you know, and, and there is no cure. It's an organic thing, but not like that. Like, like these people are quacks. And I mean, yeah, we, they came after us. It was the patients did right. The patients, the, the societies, the organization, chronic fatigue organizations and whatever. Um, I mean, and and then there was 40, you know, 45% of people who were like, yes, sign me up. I'd love to try. (laughs) anything as a put down for 10, 20 years, it's all in your head. Yeah. Organic. There's nothing really wrong with you. This is, you have pain because you want to have pain and the colorful metaphors that would come back from the patient to the physician that implied that you can imagine. Well, and what you described and what I'd love to do for part two and sorry, <laughs> sorry, I try hijacked. I just, no, I just got so excited, but, um, when you started talking about, because what happens in here has a profound effect on, it's not, I don't even like mind body connection. I hate that term because there, that, 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 uh, hints that there's two separate things that have a connection. It's just one thing. Everything is connected to everything. And what, what happens with us, the thing with the challenge with the medical approaches to fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue is you have to somehow teach the patient not to mind the pain so much because you can't really change the pain that much. What happens in our world is we get rid of the pain. We take it from an average of 7.3 to a 1.3. And then it's a matter of getting the brain used to Mm -hmm. being between a 1 and a 3 
instead of between six and an eight. And that's, that's the adjustment. So everything is connected to everything. I don't have to convince their brain that a six is okay. I have to convince their brain that a two is okay. Yeah. And then they get to redefine themselves. And so now, 20 years later, I know to have that conversation on the first visit instead of the third or the fourth. Because a fair percentage of the patients never came back after the second or third session. Can you take us really quickly through what it might look like for somebody who comes in with, you know, a chronic pain diagnosis? First thing I do is ignore everything that's been done except the imaging. Um, okay. if, right? If the diagnosis and therapy had been correct, the patient wouldn't be in my office. My whole practice is the 5 to 10% of patients nobody else can fix. So the first thing is phys- a hi- just the history and what's been done, then physical exam, including a neurologic exam, vestibular screen, so screening for vestibular injuries, which are often missed. Physical exam, um, usually the diagnosis is in a history. And then, uh, so the history and physical will take about an hour, and then the treatment takes about an hour. So a new patient is about a two-hour visit. And um, and then we treat and see what happens. And then the follow-up is usually, usually in the seminars, we talk about twice a week for four to six weeks. If you've done everything right, and if you're lucky, you don't end up treating the same thing twice. So the, you have compensations and you... Um, the thing you're treating the second time is a little bit of what you treated the first time. And then the compensations as you unwind, especially in physical complaints, um, biological stuff will almost always include the vagus um, and including brain injuries. Did you know that when the vagus is active, it increases brain derived nerve growth factor. It increases everything that makes the brain work better and reduces everything that makes the brain work worse. Had no idea. Anyway, so sometimes it involves having the patient buy a unit to use at home that can be programmed. So there's no point in having them see me in the office. I'm not a good choice for a primary care. So I tend to do the diagnosis, any additional imaging they need, um, and then refer them on to either one of my practitioners or to give them a home unit. And I'll see them usually three or four times. Um, yes. When we into the new clinic, I'll have a chiropractor probably with an organ license who can work in the clinic, and then we'll have preceptors in from out of state that are... We have every medical and clinical specialty from RNs, nurse practitioners, osteopaths, PTs, OTs, MDs, um, acupuncturists, psychiatrists, psychologists. There's another one. There's at least 10 clinical specialists. Veterinarians. And veterinarians. Yep. Using this on a horse. If you read the resonance effect, there's a great story about a, a horse that I treated in Ireland that was just magical. But they use it on racehorses. And the horse knows what's coming. So they tend to 
sort of lock their knees and lean up against the wall because whereas in an adult, in a human, when you raise endorphins, they get kind of sleepy and just sort of relax back in the chair. Well, the horse, they, they want to lay down. And so they, they learn you don't want them to lay down. So they, they lean up against the wall and they lock their knees and they, their lower lip goes on. Oh my goodness. So interesting. This has been amazing. I think we should have a part two if you'll have No, us. we have to have a part. The psychoneuro and neurology there's, one. There's just too much. <laughs> I'm going to geek out. Yeah. Amazing. The, the webinars that we did on Ehlers-Danlos and the Vegas, and you'll see what I mean with that and mold. Okay. Oh, yeah. For anyone listening to this, um, her lots of free material on your website, things to look at, and how to go deeper in your seminars and things. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was Thank you so much. You guys, that's a wrap. What a great podcast. If you're a nurse, head over to www.rnegade.pro. Follow the prompts, do the activity, fill out the evaluation for the podcast that you just listened to, and get a CE. Could we just make CE by podcast the norm? Please. Bye.